Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. Or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us, and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. This year has been, like most years, a year's a year of ups and downs. The feeling that one bad deal, one big error, can really blow a lot of the accomplishments of the year. And that is a devastating thought, and it's one that keeps me up at night. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. As 2019 wraps up, we're devoting this episode to our reflections on the past year in the machining world. What we've seen, what we've learned, and how it felt. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graff Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. When you think of 2019, what do you think of? I think of my constant battle between despondency and hope. Okay. Uh, Particularly regarding business. This year has been, like most years, a a, a year of ups and downs. The feeling that one bad deal, one big error can really blow a lot of the accomplishments of the year. And that is a devastating thought, and it's one that keeps me up at night. Sounds like we don't have enough margin for error. Do do we ever have enough margin for error? In the good old days? Were there good old days? I don't know. It always seems like it was good old days. I can't remember the good old days. It's always a struggle, and it's never easy. And... It's always a fight between... The machinery business. The machinery business is always a fight between despondency and hope. And unless you have hope, unless you keep your confidence up, you are sunk in this business. On the other hand, like most businesses, it's a business of disappointment. And the disappointments happen every day. Uh, The sense of missing the mark, the sense of failure, the sense of uh, uh, nothing coming together is one that uh, haunts me every day. Uh, One thing I've started to do, and I'm not doing it often enough, is recapitulate my day, go through what happened during the day. And usually when I do that, it's heartening because I see that I actually did move the ball. And you're doing this in the middle of the day, correct? Yes, I do. Okay, see, 
I was doing that for a little bit, and I think that was a really good thing. Now, I do it every night before I go to bed. I I recap my day, and it's very interesting how you you go. Okay, I talked to so and so, and I talked to so and so, and this happened, and you're like, "Damn, I was just crazy busy until three o'clock." I have no idea besides those like three or four conversations that I had what the hell else happened between that time but I knew I was super busy. Yeah, that is the beauty of doing it when you're close to it. And when I write at three or four o'clock in the afternoon about what has taken place during the business day, I have a better grasp of it than I do when my energy is flagging at night. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't do it late at night. I can't write late at night. Uh, I, I can't really create late at night. Late at night, I can do word games. <laughs> uh, it seems to tap into a different part of my head. And I can be reasonably uh, good on word games, although probably I'm much better in the morning. Is the reason that you you don't want to do stuff at night is just because you're kind of worn out and you're tired from the day? That's the way I feel. Yes, and uh, yeah. Uh, so really, I often want to lose myself in sports on TV. Um, I want to converse with uh, Risa, my wife. Uh, I want to... Uh, maybe read a bit of the Wall Street Journal or something that I missed during the day. Oh, totally want to stop reading news. That's particularly late at night. That's that's terrible. That's one thing I've been telling Stephanie. Don't read the news, particularly right before you go to sleep. That's one <laughs> of the new things for 2019 for me. Less emphasis on the news. Mm-hmm. It's all skewed anyways, one way or another. Yeah. True. Uh, And the news this year has been, uh, at least the political news, has been so grim with the perpetual fighting between the Republicans and Democrats. uh, And in my opinion, uh, the deterioration of the news media into focusing strictly on conflict rather rather than on uh, good things that are happening and creativity and yeah. positive things, but just focusing on the conflict has been very depressing. Okay. What's one of the things that has not been depressing about this year for you? You know, one of the things that, that hasn't been depressing is watching the Cub games. <laughs> uh even though it was a it was a bit of a tough season, right? But I mean, in the midst of the season, when the Cubs were doing well, and I was watching them, and uh, Sarah, my daughter, and son-in-law Scott were watching the games in uh, California, and we were texting and exulting in the good things, and and uh, I agree. I, I'm and I was doing it too with you. Crestfallen when uh, an error would happen or. Uh, they would fold it. I, I try to treat this season still as glass half full because, I mean, they were in it until the end. Yeah, right. And and it seems like nowadays people don't care about that. But at least it was fun for a lot of the time. 
Yeah, and it, it offered me great entertainment at night. I looked forward to those night games. Uh, they were tremendous for both winding down and revving up mm -hmm. when good things happened, and particularly being able to share it uh, with uh, uh, Scott and sometimes Sarah and even Risa joined in and you sometimes. The, this, you know, as I look back, was one of the fun things about mm -hmm. the year. You know, another great thing is actually working with you, Noah. I mean, this is almost becoming a cliche as far as uh, today's machining world is concerned, but uh, it's a joy to work with you. I wouldn't do this if I couldn't work with you because it would be too much of a downer. Uh, you lift me up and you also enable me to grow because you're constantly uh, uh, probing me with, uh, <laughs> with difficult questions that stretch me and I love it. Well, glad. I, I mean, I think you are brilliant. I hope that I don't, always seem like I'm just constantly second guessing you or, you know, being a pain in the ass in that way. Oh, you, you asked too little for this machine. You know, they're taking advantage of you. You ask the questions that nobody else will ask, will ask. And your questions are always hard questions. And that's why they stretch me. And uh, fortunately, I'm still in the mood to be stretched. I think when I'm no longer in the mood to be stretched, when I'm just angry, if somebody second guesses me, that's when I should quit. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like I'm learning from you and I'm learning from defending myself. And <laughs> very often uh, after defending myself, I feel like, you know, he probably was right. And I end up amending what I thought was correct. Well, I feel, I often feel the same way. Uh, sometimes everybody in the office will be going, Lloyd, he's crazy. What the hell is he thinking? How can he, how can he do this with the deal? And we're all second guessing you. And then, you know, sometimes we just are like, yeah, well, I guess he was right. Rarely. <laughs> It happens. It does happen. It happens. I think it's been a good year uh, in many respects. I feel like I've really I've tried to focus a lot on self-reflection, growth, listening to lots of self-help books and podcasts. Do you think they help you? I think they help me and maybe in, indirectly help you. <laughs> I, th I agree with you. They do. They push me. Um, anyways, one of the podcast people we interviewed, he said that uh, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Make Friends and Influence People, mm. this book from the 1920s or... 30s, I think, maybe. And it is one of the most read books of all time. But I listened to that book and it was very, very profound. Just some of the simplest, easiest things. Don't put somebody down and compliment everybody and uh, let somebody talk because the thing everybody loves the most is the sound of their own voice. If you want somebody to like you, let them talk. 
and uh, and you're golden. Oh yeah, I mean, I often tell the Ken Blanchard story about the taxi ride uh, that he took uh, to get to LaGuardia in New York City, and uh, he gets in the cab and he vows that the only thing he's going to do is say yes, uh huh, and that's right to the taxi driver, and. He goes through this 45-minute cab ride through the traffic and across the bridges of New York. He gets finally to LaGuardia, and the driver looks back at him and says, man, this is the best conversation I have ever had. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I totally agree. And as, as I mentioned in one of the podcasts, I did this project for a year. I talked to at least one person every day. And... Uh, tried to make a record of every single person I talked to. And I learned a lot about that, how people just light up if you let them talk and you're just asking questions. You can make their day. I, I often try to disarm people too. And they'll call and they'll say, is this Lloyd Graff? Or may I speak to Lloyd Graff? And I'll say... You've got Lloyd Graff, this is your lucky day. And what I found is that by this self-deprecating way of saying this is your lucky day, you all of a sudden have uh, lightened the conversation and you've enabled the other person to feel comfortable. And then I try my best to listen to them, ask them questions, and I often say, how can I help you today? And again, that is the kind of opening question that makes people feel comfortable and feel like this is going to be a worthwhile conversation for them. Yeah, that's it's very important to have a great introduction on the phone and to, and to make people feel... I. On the other hand, when I call people, I have the uh, this method I heard from a negotiating book where you start with a negative, you start with a no question. Is this a bad time? And now now a few people listening to this may think back to their conversations with me and they go, ah, oh, I see why he's always saying, is this a bad time? But No, but that's a way of saying... It's easy, it's easy uh, to say no. But also what you're saying is that I value your time. Yeah. And that this isn't all about me. I value what you're going to have to going to be saying to me. And when you do that, again, it's a yeah. disarming way of approaching. Yeah. And I mean, you can also go, hey, do you have a few minutes? And, and that sort of does the trick. But this, it's good to go in the negative, I think. The, um, is this a bad time? Because sometimes it really is a bad time. I called a guy up this year one time because I had a index C100 turning center to offer him. And I was really excited about that. And he's like, yeah, I'm at a wake. And, and I was like, okay, well, I'm glad I asked. And, uh, but usually what happens when you call somebody and you say, is this a bad time? They think to themselves, well, all right, I guess it's not that bad a time. <laughs> I guess I can talk, you know? All right. So good ramblings. Uh, what is, something dramatic that you 
think of when you think of this year? Some Just something sticks out. Like, what's an experience and you go, ah, this happened? Well, being very honest, the, the feeling of being uh, scammed and taken advantage of in a big way is something that has uh, absolutely uh, stuck me right in the craw and been very, very difficult to take. In 50 years of this business, I mean, you have been taken before, but is, is this the time where you feel like you had the most wool taken over your eyes? Uh, the only thing that uh, compares with it is when uh, my office manager uh, yeah. uh, uh, took uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, without me knowing it. And uh, that was a feeling. Uh, that probably felt worse, right? I, I would say yes, but by a narrow margin. <laughs> because uh, on this particular scam, we should have known better. We should have done more due diligence. And now we're paying the price for it as we attempt to recover the money that's been lost. Yeah, it, it is a pity because all we had to do was cross-reference. We bought some machines from somebody in another country. And uh, first we bought two little machines, not a lot of money. Things seemed to go okay. So we figured, okay, well, we can buy a lot of machines from them now. And we put a significant deposit down and... Um, we're still waiting for the machines. We're still waiting for the machines. Uh, and now we've had to hire a lawyer in another country and it's a mess. And, um, you know, afterward, we talked to a few other dealers and they were like, uh, yeah, I heard they did this to somebody else and um, you need to be careful. And, and then I listened to this book by Malcolm Gladwell highly recommended. It came out this year called Talking to Strangers. And I was feeling like total crap from what happened with this deal. And I listened to this book. It's all about how just because you meet somebody, you have no idea who these people are, which is very, it's kind of depressing when you think about it. You know, they, they start the book by talking about these Cuban spies. And they had been in the CIA spying for, for years and years. And nobody realized that they were double agents. And I mean, these people are, they're paid to understand who's, you know, scamming them. You know, he talks about Neville Chamberlain going to talk to Hitler. He was the only person that went and spent any time with Hitler. And by spending time with Hitler, turned out he ended up feeling like he could, quote unquote, deal with Hitler. And, you know, everybody knows what happened next. So he says what people do is they, they do what's called defaulting to truth. We have to default to truth because, you know, Madoff was another, uh, and, and Sandusky, he brings those guys up. If you don't default to truth, then you're never going to let your kid play baseball because you're going to think that he's going to get abused by the coach. And nobody's ever going to want to coach baseball because they're going to feel like they're going to be accused by somebody. So in order for society to work, even with all these terrible people, we have to have this trust of our fellow person. And so 
when you get scammed the next time, don't feel like you're stupid because, yeah, sure, there's other precautions you could have taken, but it's always easy afterward to say, oh, you should have asked this or you should have realized this because people are just, they're very deceptive. I've run into this in trying to do uh, deals where I'm the intermediary in trying to sell a plant. And what I've found is uh, that, in my opinion, people are too cautious. They become obsessed with, quote unquote, due diligence to a fault where they end up examining so much minutiae that they can't see the big picture. Do you think you do that? No. No, I tend to be going the other way. I tend to uh, be more trusting. And, and neither one is... Uh, I mean, you, you think you don't look at the details enough? Yeah. I, I tr tend to trust my gut more and not go into the minutiae. Other people feel like uh, somehow the details, the minutiae, uh, will reveal something to them that the quote-unquote big picture somehow hides or their gut feeling hides. N neither one is a foolproof answer. Uh, the people who get uh, bogged down in the minutiae end up blowing so many deals. You're talking about like auction deals? N no, I was talking... I think auctioneers tend to uh, go with their gut much more. They do a, a semblance of due diligence, but then they make a bid and hope they are right, and they figure that if they do 10 deals, they're going to get seven or eight right, and uh, the two that they get wrong aren't going to sink them. Yeah. And I think that people who do a lot of deals have to take that attitude. And I think we take that attitude in the machinery business, that if you do 10 deals, you're going to get two or three where uh, you're going to get one where you absolutely were wrong, a, a couple where you were semi-wrong, and you hope that you get half of them where you were right on the button. Yeah. If you do, you're going to do well. But sometimes you get one humdinger, which is what happened to us this year, and, the deal uh, that we thought was going to be the most profitable yeah. of them, then it swung the opposite way. Yeah. Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's swarfcast podcast at gmail.com. What machines are you thinking are going to be where we're, where we're going for the coming year? And, and what, what did you see this last year? Um, I, I think that it's difficult to say. I think that the big opportunity is in the unloved machines. Uh, this is where uh, people may misjudge the value. On the other hand, the unloved machines are unloved for a reason. So I think we have to balance off buying the loved machines, uh, but keeping 
a constant vigil out for the undervalued, unloved machines. So in other words, yeah, you can buy uh, three-year-old CNC Swiss and Haas machines, and you know that you're going to move them. Uh, you may misjudge uh, the high end of the value, but you're not going to be way off the mark. Uh, it's on the, uh, but on the other hand, the uh, possibility of uh, making a significant profit is low. On the other hand, uh, the unloved machines, the hydromats, the multi-spindles, are the machines uh, that uh, have a thin market. But on the other hand, if you need them, you need them. And uh, if we can position ourselves properly on those machines, we can have a winning Are uh, you, game. How do you feel about automotive uh, in the next year? I know you've, you've discussed your thoughts about Europe versus the United States. Do you really think that there's a big difference? Well, I think Europeans have bought into uh, climate change and uh, how can they buy into something like that? And God. the uh, the need uh, to switch over to electric uh, cars in uh, quickly in a much more grandiose way than uh, in the United States and North America. Asia, I don't really know, uh, but I think Asia is more like the United States. So the Europeans believe that everybody is going to switch to electric. Uh, which Euro gonna, which and, Europeans? Oh, I think uh, Germany, I think France. I no, think I mean like... Italy. Who? The automotive companies? Y yeah, the automotive companies. The uh, VW. Well, VW, which has a notorious history of being wrong. Uh, the kings of diesel. And, and then you have uh, Mercedes and BMW, uh, Fiat, uh, maybe to a lesser degree, but particularly the big German companies appear to have bought into the idea of electric in a big way. And so you think that many of our customers, the big automotive customers uh, doing production work for in Europe, they're in for a bit of change in the coming year and multi-spindles uh, are... They, they are stuck right in the middle of the indecision about uh, what to do. And I don't envy their position. Uh, they've, they are heavily committed uh, to the gasoline engine cars. Uh, they've built up their uh, capacity uh, doing work on that kind of stuff. All of a sudden, the big investment by the big companies is in electric. Uh, nevertheless, th what they're selling today is still a gasoline engine. So they are stuck right in the middle. And that's because automotive contracts are long term. Yeah. So, yeah, they can see next for the next two, three years, they're going to be okay. Uh, but they see a, a dramatically waning market for the gasoline cars uh, in Europe. And in the United States, I think it's similar, uh, but uh, the commitment to uh, electric is 
significant by the big automotive companies, but we're not seeing the huge investments in electric that have been stated Mm -hmm. that are happening yet. So I think American companies are a little more confident that their run in gasoline is going to last longer than the Europeans do. But I mean, look, here, maybe this has just to do with CAM and CNC, et cetera, but there's been a few auctions lately with multi-spindles, CAM multi-spindles, and machines went for, you know, we saw a small auction last week where a multi-spindle, a Gildemeister, that we sold a few years ago for $175,000. It went for 65000 Yeah. A GM, GM35. And, you know, that was like treasure. If you could find that yeah. anywhere in the world, you had a few people you could go to and get really good money. Now, granted, it was an auction. It wasn't very advertised, but... That says something. What, what, what does that make you feel, Dan? That makes me feel people are extremely cautious. Or is it, does it make you feel that that technology is not where we should be? Or is that like the unloved machines you were talking about before where it just takes a little bit of faith and finding the right customer? Um, I actually think that uh, those machines are per- right in the middle of that unloved uh, category at the moment that uh, were dramatically undervalued. So perhaps if we had wanted to spec, it would have been a good spec. Yeah, I, that's what I think, because they're a rarity on the used market. And uh, at, a, at that given moment, they were dramatically undervalued by the market. These are things that uh, a speculator in machine tools uh, ought to love. So you think maybe we should have bought one? Um, it was kind of right on the borderline yeah, of the price we should have bought it at. Yeah, I would say that. And, you know, the you add on the 15% buyer's premium that the auctioneers extract, and it always takes these machines a little bit out of reach. Right, but just about, what, two years ago, we had proposed somebody a hundred thousand to buy one of those, and now we wouldn't. So that's mm-hmm. right. That shows a falling market. However, one could also argue, and I think there's validity that we're in a lull period, and that some of the indecision may be pulling out of the market as we speak. I mean. You had a resolution in the election uh, yesterday in England of the Brexit issue. Okay, so that's been overhanging Europe for some time. But how is there a resolution? You had a resolution because the, uh, the, the candidate advocating Brexit won a clear majority, and he can now negotiate a final deal uh, with the EU. You, you had some resolution of uh, the problems with China, uh, but... I think people are now getting used to the idea that the conflict uh, with China is long-term, and it has very little to do with Trump. It has everything to do with uh, America and China, 
having conflicting views of proper market practice and being long-term competitors as well as markets for one another. Well, I mean, it was brought about by Trump, of course. Nobody else had the chutzpah. uh... Right, but it won't go away now whether Trump's reelected or not. Sure. This is a a problem, an issue, uh, the United States versus China, which I think uh, both Republicans and Democrats now acknowledge is here to stay. And this is a good thing that people are finally acknowledging the problem and saying it has to be addressed. I think the uh, Clinton, Bush, uh, Obama understood the problem and looked the other way. Now we're facing it. And I think long term, this is good for the United States. Yeah. Will China change? No. I don't foresee China adopting practices that will be acceptable as far as intellectual property is concerned. This is just not part of their culture. It's not part of their belief. They think if it's out there, it's to be stolen. All right. So then we are punishing ourselves. We're making life harder for ourselves then, even if it's not going to change them? Something had to wake them up as far as the resolve of the United States. The tariffs were a crude method of doing that, but they did wake up the Chinese because it's something that has hurt them as well as hurt us. Uh, so it's a, in a way it's self-flagellation, but it finally sent the message to the Chinese that we're serious about addressing this issue. And they get that. That doesn't mean they're going to acquiesce. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that made this year a difficult one. And it's not going away, but I think the Chinese economy is weakening by the month. And so they're going to at least want to have a useful truce for them. And the same could be said probably for the U.S., particularly going into an election year. Mm. Uh, So uh, anyway, but I think that actually next year is going to be a better year than this year. For Graf Pinkard or for the economy? or For for... the economy and for Graf Pinkard, because... You're not worried about the election year and the indecision? That is the definite problem. Uh, However, if it appears that uh, a quote-unquote moderate Democrat is going to win the nomination and it's not going to be Warren or uh, Sanders, then I think that uh, some of the fear about the election will go away. And I think we'll have a resolution by June uh, on the Democratic side. Maybe sooner, maybe later, it may go into the convention. And then again, it, it could go, even go into uh, the House of Representatives if uh, Bloomberg ends up running on a third-party ticket. But that's way, way off. I feel like customers will take any excuse they can find to be indecisive and <laughs> not buy stuff. You know, it's a lot of, it, you know, it, it takes balls or a big need to go and spend a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars on a machine. So if you can find some excuse to hold you back from it, 
they will. Well, that's an argument for giving people good value uh, with a used machine. It limits their risk. Before we wrap this up, I just want to say how much fun I've been having with this podcast and doing it with you, Dad. And uh, happy to say we have gotten our first advertiser for the podcast besides Graf Pinkert. Graf Pinkert will still do our own ads, but Firetrace is going to be doing ads uh, this coming year. And uh, hopefully, you know, it'll catch on even more. But I want to say thank you to our, you know, our solid number of people that are tuning in every week. It's a big ego boost and hear good things. I hate to sound like all the other podcasters out there, but it really helps if you can subscribe and share it um, and rate it. It makes a big difference, particularly like when it's it's in the low volumes, your, your one subscription actually makes a big difference. Kudos to you, Noah, on the podcast. I think you've uh, broken new ground. You've uh, stretched yourself. Uh, you've brought me into the world of podcasting. Uh, you've enabled me to reach out and talk to people I wouldn't have talked to. And I think you've done a great job with it. And I look forward to more interviews. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Happy New Year. <laughs>